Welcome to today's edition of Feet to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to be able to gather and study your word. Thank you for the folks gathered here, their eagerness, their fellowship, their love for one another, their love for Christ, their love for the scriptures, their love for the church. Give us insight. Teach us. I don't want to bring out anything uh, uh, surprising and new. I just want to teach the plain text of Scripture. And as you illuminate it to our hearts, enlarge our view of who you are, convict us of sin, encourage us where we need it, help us to grow and use us for the advancement of the kingdom, which is our calling here on earth, even in our various vocations, whether we're school teachers, engineers, college students, whatever the case, we're serving the Lord and the gospel Um, change our thinking where we need that, Lord, and help us to grow in our faith. We commit this time to you and thank you and love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we finally finished. uh, Thanks again, Dad. Appreciate it. Um, You too. Love you. What's that? Oh, is that there? Pause this real quick. All right. We're back on. So... um, it's pres- so we, we finally finished, uh, I think, quite a few sessions on 20, it became 28 principles to glean out of Nehemiah. I still have copies of that if you wanted them. Um, we're done with that unit, but hopefully you were blessed by that. You can go back and review it and um, hopefully help to frame for you a biblical worldview. We're going to go on, but one of the reasons I love Nehemiah is the next section that we're going into. And uh, reading it again, I'm reminded of why I love it so much. It's very practical and... Uh, I feel that that's relatable for us as Christians because, you know, it's not, I mean, the stories about Elijah calling fire out of heaven are wonderful and we, we cherish those, but we're not doing that right now. And that's not how God has seen fit to act in the world now, currently in the church age. It's very day to day for us. And that's why Nehemiah is also cherished because it's a very relatable book. This is just a regular guy living out his Christian life faithfully as he's called to do and, and we see those principles again here in scripture so let's uh if you're in your study guide um a quick opening question we're on page 111 lecture 10 uh, uh lesson 10 and uh if somebody has a book read us the first question nice and loud on 111 what does it mean to practice what you preach? Why is it important for a person in leadership to exhibit this trait? So what does it mean to practice what you preach? And why is that important? <clears throat> Emily? Um, if you're in a position of leadership, if you lead your flock astray, you'll be held to a higher accountability. Um, and obviously you don't want to be a hypocrite and lose your testimony. Right. Um, Christ reserves some of his strongest uh, rebukes and admonitions against the hip- hypocrites and hypocrisy. You know, it wasn't so much we often mistake and misunderstand the Pharisees and the problem with the Pharisees, and we fall into this lingo and evangelicalism that I don't think is really as accurate and faithful to the text that it ought to be. It's like, oh, the Pharisees were legalist. Um, yeah, but let's use the language of Scripture. More precisely, they were hypocrites. So Christ did not criticize people for pursuing holiness and righteousness and wanting to be religious and faithfully so. What he criticized was hypocrisy. And what hypocrisy is, is the lip service 
of religious religiosity and that you're saying you want to be devout and yet your lifestyle is what? The opposite. So he wasn't rebuking the Pharisees for wanting to be holy. That you can't want to be holy too much, right? That's God's desire is holiness. The problem was they were saying they wanted to be holy and they were quite what? Yeah, unholy. They were not very religious. They were unholy people. They were filled with all kinds of sin and dead men's bone, whitewashed tombs, defilement and putridity and sin. Yeah, I use that word. That's what they were filled with. So he said, clean the inside first and don't come to me the outside clean. So Emily's right. Hypocrisy, especially in leadership, undercuts all your ministry. And you're saying one thing but doing another and you're not really trusted. Um, Versus when you live out and practice what you preach, then you can, uh, that's teaching that can be trusted. That's an example that you can follow. And there's, there's a genuine authenticity to the instruction because the individual is doing what they say. So um, it's important. We're going to see that in Nehemiah. All right. Let's, let's read the text and I'll make comments as we read. Um, so go to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you have a question or comment, raise your hand and interrupt. And again, I don't suppose to bring anything wildly um, insightful on my own. I'll just let the scripture speak for itself as the Lord leads the study. This Bible is insightful enough. What chapter? Nehemiah chapter 5. So, who said that? I don't know where the voice came from. Oh, thanks, Eric. I was like... um, no, it's okay. We're doing all of Nehemiah chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Gotcha. Yep, thank you. So um, I'm not going to do the full intro and background. I know it's really important, but sometimes when I re- re-listen to my messages, I'm like, wow, I did a lot on background. So Israel and Judah divided kingdom sin. God sent them into, ba- into exile where? In Babylon. And how many years did Daniel prophecy? 70 years. They came back in three waves. This is, that was the exile. This is the post-exilic books after the exile. And they came back, Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah led one of the waves of people back. He got resources and permission and cavalry and soldiers and wood and everything from the king of, I believe, Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire that had conquered Babylon. Um, we're in the mid-400s B.C. And... Uh, he was given permission by the, by the political powers to go rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They also had to rebuild the temple, and that was some of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. And then everything goes silence until Christ. Um, so this is the very end of the historical narrative of the Old Testament. And Nehemiah was a governor. And so the beginning of the book, he's in front of the king of, of Persia. And uh, he's sad, and, and because he found out messengers came back to Babylon and said, Jerusalem's in a mess, and the wall is broken down. And so he was grieving, and the king's like, why are you so sad? And he's like, the f- place of my father's is, uh, uh, is a wreck. And he goes, well, I'll send you back to build it up. So Nehemiah goes back in chapter 2. Uh, he's examining everything and uh, tells them to take heart and start building and don't fail and face the opposition. Uh, chapter 3 details all the building of the wall. Chapter 4 is when we read about the opposition that they were getting, and we got a lot of principles out of that last couple of months, where the enemy was threatening them, and then they were you know, working all through the day, one hand holding a shovel, the other hand holding a sword or a weapon, 
Um, half of them were standing guard, half of them were working. They even take time to, you know, uh, you know, change their clothes. They just kept day and, you know, day and night, day they were working, night they were posting guard. And then we get to chapter five and there's still disobedience in the ranks of Israel, particularly among the ruling class and the elite. And if your mind goes to parallels in today's culture, that's good. I'm not going to over-interpret or overemphasize, but I will draw parallels out where they come up. And if your mind goes there, that, that's correct. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning verse 1. You guys hear me all right all the way back there, John, Tom? Cool. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers, and some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. So the idea with that was they were working so much, they were poor and didn't have an opportunity to do much farming, and they didn't have food, and nobody was sharing with them. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So other ones had property. The first group, MacArthur said, probably was working on other people's property, like they were um, pro- property managers or property farmers. They didn't own the property, but they were working on it. But Yeah, that type of thing. But there was such little food because they were spending so much time building a wall and there was a lot of poverty. The second group had fields. They started mortgaging them back to the you know, wealthy to get money so they can go buy food. And verse 4, still others are saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Um, So the idea, MacArthur explains, is probably indentured servitude, where you have to sell yourself into work for uh, property owners uh, for a certain number of years, and they basically own you. Um, so when you see the word slavery, it's not, not everything is looked at through the lens of um, 19th century American slavery. There's all kinds of slavery through human history in different versions. This is probably a work-oriented indentured servitude. Not great, though, because they would, they'd be stuck being owned by the, the landowners and working there. Their sons and daughters had to be sold into that kind of indentured servitude. Verse 6. When I heard... Their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And I love this next verse. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Usury is interest. And uh, it's just a great picture of Nehemiah because they're clearly violating the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, this isn't, by the way, People misinterpret all this stuff, but this isn't to say that it's a sin for a bank to charge interest in a business transaction. Do you understand what interest is? I mean, you all probably bank accounts at this point. So if you borrow money, then um, as you're paying it back, you have to pay extra for the time that you borrowed it. That's interest. Well, that's fine. That's not sin. That's normal transactions. But in Israel, they were commanded in the Old Testament not to charge interest among their brothers and sisters in the household of faith particularly when it was a rich person and a poor person and there was a need. If you, if you loan the money, then let it be paid back without interest, which the, word, the fancy word is usury, okay? Who do we got there? Hi. Yo, what's up, buddy? Hey. Morning, Sean. Sorry, I'm late. No problem. There might actually be a free seat up with Joey if you yeah, want. If you want to see it here. He has to give up his cup holder, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 
Shylock. Uh, Shylock. Shylock. It's, um, it's a generally a religious practice that where two uh, brethren or a group of brethren don't charge interest to their common folk, but that yet to the opposite, the opposite denomination or a different religious group, they would charge an excessive amount of interest to a non, particularly with the Jewish people today, uh, they don't charge interest between themselves. So they're also it's a Shylock practice. Oh, I don't know. It's still happening today. Yeah, the Jews, don't, they, they're not allowed to charge interest for any type of lending. But for a non-Jew or a Gentile, they charge an astronomical amount of interest, which is the principle of Shylock. Got it. Okay, interesting. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, very interesting. I didn't know that. Um, so he continues in the middle of verse 7. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, As far as possible... We have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. I love this. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. You know, you just feel like they're put in their place. So I continued. What you were doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the what? Fear. Fear of our God. That is all over the book of Nehemiah. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? To avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the fields of my, folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Is obedience important? Mm-hmm. Very important. I mean, these kinds of passages should strike at our heart and say, we've been sold this bill of goods in evangelicalism nowadays that it's just pray a prayer, and then everything else is Christian liberty. We have Christian liberty. I understand that. I practice my own Christian liberties in certain areas. But uh, the point of following Christ is not to just make a public verbal profession and then go live how you want. Because it doesn't matter. Because it's just grace, grace, grace. Obedient, that's Nehemiah's point, is you guys are claiming faith and you're ignoring God's commandments and trampling on them and doing them what you want to promote your own self-interest. By the way, we'll get to it. This is not a repute. Is this? I'll ask this question. Well, that's you're going to know the obvious answer. I'll just won't ask this question. I'll just say this is not a repudiation of wealth. That's not the issue. In fact, was the wealth helpful? Yes, because the wealth could be what used and shared. So that's not the issue. And that's how people misinterpret this stuff. You know, they find all kinds of weird things in here like socialism and communism. We'll get to that. That's not the main point, but some interesting things to share with you on that. But that don't misinterpret it that way. The issue was the heart and obedience and what they were doing with their wealth and how they were taking advantage of people who didn't have. Okay. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, I'm in verse 14 now. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years. Remember, these little details, I've pointed it out in Nehemiah and Ezra. Those little details are inserted. What's one of the purposes? 
12 years, King Artaxerxes, the 32nd year. Why, why is that stuff put in there? Yes, historical validity, reliability, accuracy. These things can be checked. That's one of the unique things about the Gospel of Luke is more so than the others. uh, He has a lot of historical information. The timing of Christ's birth, who the emperor was, who the regional kings and magistrates were. A lot of that stuff is in Luke that's noteworthy in his Gospel. All those things are tucked into Scripture so that we can... Test it, not for the purpose of challenging God, but it can be tested. It stands up to test. test. It's very historically accurate, reliable, and it's embedded in a historical moment. These are real people, and these things really did happen, including these 12 years that Nehemiah just articulated. Okay, so let's keep going. During those 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the what? I lost you guys. Go back to verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. I was supposed to film, let you film lies. <laughs> allotted to the who? Governor. governor. But the earlier governors, those who preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine, Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not inquire any land. So understand, he was allotted a salary in food and goods and money to be the governor that was rightfully his. And what did Nehemiah do as an example to the Israelites? What did he do? He didn't use it. He didn't use it. He didn't take it. Who said that? Me. Sean, thank you. Yeah, did you follow this? Okay, he, he said, no, I don't even take the governor's lines. Was he entitled to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he said, no. My, oh my, your mind should go to right now in our culture where all that we see in, in many, many politicians and leaders is, is do we see them allowing people to keep their property? Or what do we see then? Taking. Taking. They're not doing this. Oh my goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful to get a leader that would be like, hold, don't even pay me. Just give it back to the people. I just, I want to not use my power and influence for selfish gain. Isn't that exemplary from Nehemiah? Right? And that's the kind of leadership you want. He's rebuking them for not sacrificing and, and they could have gone back and been like, well, what are you sacrificing? And before they could even say that, he was like, I've already, for 12 years, I have not taken my portion. I've been in the mud and the dirt with the men working. I haven't even acquired land. Man, renouncing your entire political salary that you're owed for the sake of an example of service. Who did that? Did anybody ever hear that? What's that? Paul. Paul? Who's saying that? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, John. Paul did that, didn't he? And we'll talk about that more. When he served the Corinthians, he did not take a salary from them. And he said, I robbed other, other churches supported Paul. But when he was with them, he said, no, I'm not taking money. I want you to see me serving selflessly. What other, do you have any other contemporary example? Trump, Trump didn't take a salary. You're absolutely correct. Isn't that interesting? Did you guys know that? Yeah, Trump, the bigot, misogynistic, racist, hating, xenophobe, Islamophobe, whatever phobe, whatever phobe, 
did not collect one cent of salary for his four years as president. That, what are you saying, as a Christian? No, no, I didn't say that. I don't know Trump. I didn't say that. And I didn't say he's the exemplary Christian model. I said, that is, that's a neat thing, isn't it? Isn't that a good quality of leadership for a guy to say, no, I'm going to serve free of charge. Wow, you don't hear that in the news. That's really interesting. I'm curious, how many did not know that? Didn't know what? That Trump worked for no salary. Oh. Yeah, interesting, right? So, but um, Nehemiah obviously is setting that example, and that is a very compelling way to lead. To say to the people that you're serving, I don't want anything from you. What I want is your hearts. And that's what he was saying to these leaders. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. Wait, not only did he not collect a salary... What do you see he just did in 17? Yeah. Out of his wealth, he fed them and sacrificed for them. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Do you see the heart of this guy? This is such practical teaching. I love this. This is not, I mean, I love, you know I love the story of Elijah calling fire to heaven. I mentioned it all the time. It's one of my favorites. But is this still recording even when it goes on screen? Yeah, it's okay. Sorry, I went on screensaver. But I love this too because this is just, I mean, this is something we can... We just can't call fire out of heaven. I mean, we have resurrection power at work in us, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we have something better than what Elijah had, the Holy Spirit living in us. But we're not really fire callers. That's not our ministry right now. But we can do this. We can say, no, I'm going to sacrifice as an example of leadership, as an example of selfless love for people in the church. And it's a very simple thing. And in spite of all of this, he never demanded the food allotted. And how many people did he have over, even from the surrounding nations? He had magistrates. And I could just see the ancient 5th century BC media. Right? When, look what he had out there. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, poultry, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. And, and 150 people around this table. And you can see the cameras coming in. I'm not trying to make a joke. I'm trying to be serious. Cameras coming in. Oh, look how much food he has. All the pomp and circumstance and all the waste and extravagance. And he has all these famous people at, uh, around him. And all Nehemiah is just doing is his self-aggrandizement. It's all about his self-promotion and uh, wasting all of our money. And nobody realized that all that food was coming from whose own personal bank account? Mm-hmm. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And he was hosting all of these magistrates from the surrounding nations because he was a political leader. He was the governor. And he was showing grace. I mean, these surrounding nations, did they all love Israel? No, they hated Israel. And there he's being a witness and a light. I I just, I love that picture. You want to meet this guy and be like, man, what, what a sacrifice out of his abundance. It's, it's very inspiring. And then I love this verse. And I, I hope I could pray this prayer. You know, we lack confidence because of our own sin, but we should strive for this. Look at verse 19. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Mm-hmm. He's not ashamed. He knows he's standing. I, I, 
I should have got the reference and I didn't. It was running through my head while I was working on this lesson. I think it's in the Old Testament in the Psalms where the psalmist says, here I stand, I'm paraphrasing, here I stand in the integrity of my own heart, Lord. I have obeyed you. I've done what you commanded. Not in a self-righteous way, but saying, I want to please my father. And when we're walking, here's my, my point. When we're walking in obedience to Christ, there's a, there's a prevailing confidence we have that we're, we're being the men and women Christ called us to be. And we can go to our heavenly father who loves us. He already died for you. He already spilled his blood for you on the cross of Calvary. He already conquered death for you. He already loves you. You're forgiven. It's all gone. He, you're, you, he's, he's ready to welcome you with open arms, wants you to obey, and wants to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And when we know we're walking in the Spirit, according to the word of Scripture, according to God's word, we can, we can say like Nehemiah, remember me, Lord. I, I, I desire your grace because you've worked in me to do what is right. That is great confidence. And again, it always goes back to the fact that God's working that in you by the Holy Spirit. It's not on your own. But isn't there such a piece to that? I love that. All right. Then he gets hit again. And Nehemiah is a fighter. Look at this. Chapter 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies. I'm in chapter 6. That I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Anno. So this wall is pretty much done except for the gates. And, and I just, I'm sorry. Every time I read this book, I'm like, it's, this is the wall thing. It's just so conspicuous. Okay. But this, what made them mad was the wall. It's so funny. It, it made them so mad, which is just like right now. But he had the whole thing up. It's ready to go. And they're like, come on, uh, meet us in the, in the village on the plain of Anna. But what's he say at the end of verse 2? Meet, come, let us meet together in, in one of the villages in the plain of Anna. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Did he give up? No. No, push back. I love this line. Uh, Ready? Write this down. Put it in your head. This, you don't have to write it down. I'm just saying. Okay. This is what pushback looks like. I love that line. hear it all the time. Because here's the point. Everybody gets upset that the culture is encroaching on the church and that the culture is getting worse and worse. And then the minute somebody pushes back, like Johnny Mac. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. It tells Beth Moore, go home. Then all of a sudden social media blows up and everybody's mad. Oh, Johnny Mac's a misogynist and he's mean and not compassionate. Let me tell you something. This, what did I just say? This is what, what? Pushback looks like. Nehemiah pushback. Nope. Nope. Wrong. We're building the wall. Wrong. We're building the wall. I love that. I love that. We're building a wall because that's Right. Because we're not going to let false teachers come in and spout their feminism and muddy up the church. Go home. That's what pushback looks like. Sometimes somebody has to come in. I like this line. I heard this in conservative media. I like this one. Sometimes somebody just has to come into the room and break up the furniture a little bit. Just got to break up the furniture. Because 
the culture is aggressively, and I'm being hyperbolic, guys. You know I, I mean that. I'm not saying fist fight, okay? All right. Don't go to someone's house and break their furniture. Um, but pushback. Nehemiah, we, we're missing that in evangelicalism. Oh, we're acquiescing everywhere in every direction. That'll be part of the topic on November 19th with the wokeness and Christianity. Acqui- why are we acquiescing to me too? Why are we, why are we acquiescing to the transgender thing. Why, why are we acquiescing on these points? Um, even, we've even seen, seen evangelicals recently acquiescing on issues like abortion, weakening on it. No, this is what pushback looks like. Let's look, Nehemiah. I said, and, and he wasn't rude. He just said, no, why am I stopping God's work? Because you're threatening me. I'm going to continue the work. Verse four. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them what? The same answer. I'm not coming to meet with you. You're trying to hinder the work of God and harm me. I'm going to continue with the work. And, and it doesn't have to be a cult. We don't have to just always apply things in a cultural sense. In your own life, in your battle with sin, when you're battling with uh, internal temptations and sin, give it pushback. I, I, I'm not saying like Pentecostal, like, Rebuke Satan. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when you're struggling with sin, get on your knees and pray, you know, Lord, I'm dealing with these temptations, but by your power in me, I'm going to push back. I'm going to follow the example of Nehemiah. I'm going to be a man or woman of prayer, and I'm going to deny my flesh by your grace in me, and I'm going to push back against this and say, no, I'm not stopping the work of God because I'm being tempted in this or that direction, or I'm being... uh, you know, thoughts and ideas and temptations are getting into my head. I'm fighting back. We, we can't be passive in our Christian faith is what I'm trying to say. War the noble warfare. Fight the good fight of the faith. Who says that and to whom in the New Testament? Paul to Timothy. Yes, Paul to Timothy. And, and Timothy had a problem with timidity, actually, we see from 2 Timothy. And Paul's like, no, no, you've got to walk in the calling that God has given you and not be timid and fight the noble warfare. War the, fight the good fight of the faith. Okay, so keep going. Then, these guys don't relent. Verse 5. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. Fifth time. Fifth time. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. I didn't know. I found out from reading uh, MacArthur's commentary. Letters were sealed. That I knew. It was, everything was really sealed. But when it was unsealed, it was kind of a slap in the face to be like, it's, it's not a private letter among the, the rulers and governors. It's everybody knows this smut about you. So we're not going to bother sealing it because you're, you're, you're a waste. And here, even, even the little messenger, the nobody, he can read it on his way to you. So it's like publicizing something when it's an open letter. Unsealed letter. And actually, you kind of see that nowadays. You know, an open letter to whoever and they'll put it in a newspaper open letter to the editors or open letter to whoever and it's like you know and it'll target somebody so it's the same type of thing in which was written verse 6 it is reported among the nations and <laughs> and Geshem says it's true who was Geshem one of the other what scoundrels and enemies you know it's being reported and by the way that liar he says it's true too it's like the New York Times being like Yo, we heard this about Christians. By the way, the Washington Post, and you're like, really? Did you just, like, okay. 
Sorry if you read those newspapers. Get a better source of news information. All right. Um, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you are building the wall. <laughs> now, was that true that they're plotting to revolt? No. This is all made up. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. Still trying to draw him in. I love the reply. Okay? Because sometimes the Bible has really, like, poetic and captivating lines. And sometimes it's just plain, plain Jane. Sorry if your name's Jane or you're related to Jane. I mean that insulting. Just a plain Jane, no frills answer. And look what he says, verse 8. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You were just making it up out of your head. <laughs> yeah, that's all he says. Just making it up, man, out of your own head. You invented that. And he leaves it alone. And they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. We're going to keep frightening and threatening the people of God. And I love this verse, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So good. When you see Nehemiah's strongest moments of leadership, faithfulness, masculinity, like that warrior impulse, what do you see him do in the Bible, in the text, in the narrative? What's he do? He prays. He prayed when he was in front of the king uh, of Persia. He prayed. He, he, when he went around the city, he was praying, when he was first investigating. And you, you noticed when he was about to rebuke the elders, did he just rebuke them or he stopped and did what? He meditated, he pondered, I'm guessing. I don't want to interpret, over-interpret, but he probably prayed back in chapter 5. He's, he's, he said, strengthen my hands, Lord. I need your strength to do this. One day I went to the house, verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shimea, son of Delea, sorry if I'm pronouncing wrong, the son of Mehedabel, who was shut in at his home. And he said, this is, this is one of his like guys in Israel. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. So like one, one of the close people to him is being hyper-religious. Come on, let's go into the temple. But I said, should a man like me run away? I'm no coward, basically saying. Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And Nehemiah, you weren't just to like will, allowed to willy-nilly run into the temple. That would be question. defiling to God. Yeah. Just a quick question. Yeah. You said him going to the temple would be religious. You said like some guy's telling him, let's go to the temple, let's bolt the doors shut. No, I'm saying this is a guy who's a false prophet and he's playing the religious card. Like, let's get God's protection in the temple. That's the safest place to go because he's setting a trap for him. We'll see in the next verses. Does that make sense? Uh, okay. Yeah, I haven't really read any of the verses around this, so I'll take your report. Okay. No, I mean, he's just, in other words, he's not hiding in, like, the barn. He's, he's, he's invoking God as the, as the uh, for protection. Yes. And let's, this, is, this is really sacred. Let's go into the temple and you'll be safe there. I mean, where else is a more safe place? But Nehemiah's point is like, I'm not allowed to just waltz into the temple. At, first of all, I'm not going to be a coward. And second of all, I revere God and there's, there's laws on entering the temple. And I'm, you know, for the priests and things like that, I don't have permission to just waltz into the temple and claim 
that I'm supposed to be there because I'm in trouble. He's not, I'm not going to defile the temple, basically, yeah, in that way. Yeah, I guess when I heard, like, religious, I was thinking you were saying, like, this guy was being, like, legalistic or something. It's just, like, how I was interpreting. No, that's okay. Gotcha. No problem. Yeah, man. So, uh, verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away, or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had what? Hired him. This is like lousy two-bit mafia activity. Like it doesn't get more uh, like low, low-brow, low-level crime. Laura meant to. Laura meant to, yeah. Use the temple because Nehemiah is hyper spiritual. You know, get him in there. Then we'll kill him. Here we'll slip you some money. I mean, slip you some money to get him. Who does this sound like? We'll pay you off to get him. Yes. No. Yeah, sure, but. Judas. Judas. Yeah, and Jesus. This is the same stuff. This is the same stuff that they're doing. Verse 13. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin, commit a sin by doing this. And that's what Nehemiah is referencing. I'm not authorized to go into the temple for my own self-protection. I'm not going to violate God's law and defile myself in the temple by going in when I'm not authorized. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And here it is again, calling evil what it is. Remember we talked about that over the last couple months. Call evil, evil. Yeah. Um, does it mention anything about their, their own religious priests to buy in some Sambalot? Are they like pagans or? They're Sumerians. Sumerians. So, uh, Samaritans. Right. Yeah, so if, if anything, maybe half somehow connected to Jewish, but not Jewish. Oh, okay. And not practicing Judaism. Although there is a connection we'll see at the end of the passage. Remember, uh, verse 14. Remember Tobiah, so I told you uh, last time, Nehemiah was not afraid to call evil what it was. So here it is again. He's back to prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, we don't have much information on her at all, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Why is that interesting that he's saying, remember the evil of the prophets and the prophetess? What's that implying? Well, yeah, definitely judgment, Hannah. Absolutely. He's, he's, yeah, he's calling evil evil and saying, God, judgment is needed here. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's not just Sambalot and Tobiah who are Samaritans. Who are the ones trying to intimidate him? People who claim to be followers of God. Yeah, people who claim to, in other words, inside the household, quote unquote, of faith in the family of God were sellouts and liars trying to bully him into submission. And that, that happens all the time in the church. We're facing it right now in our, in our culture and in the church. Bullying people into submission uh, because you're taking a stand for the truth. And from your own, as I said, household of faith, people are like, attack, attack, attack. Nehemiah stood his ground. Let's finish this up. Verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days, they got that wall built. Again, detail. The Bible is historically reliable. He's telling you the month down to the day when they finished it. And when all our enemies heard about this, wait, sorry, <laughs> just got to camp out one more time. Not one more time, as much as I want. Verse 16, <laughs> when all our enemies heard about this, what? That the wall was done all the surrounding nations were what 
afraid because the righteous had a defense. They had a wall and they lost their what? Self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The wall was rebuilt, the righteous nation was secure and the enemies were mad because they couldn't get at it. Man is their application today. I'll let, leave that to your imagination. All right, verse 17.